the 17th chapter, and again to get the setting, first of all, point out that uh, of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke is the one that anybody remembers does what? Chronological order. And uh, Matthew follows a topical order. Uh, Mark, uh, a bang-bang thing that moves very quickly. Uh, most of Mark, the vast majority of it, can be found in Luke and Matthew. And that's why that uh, uh, most scholars believe that either Luke or Matthew had either had excess or had read Mark or that there was a common source that they called Q that was used by both Mark and Matthew and Luke. And the, most of scholars you'd check from would believe that, that there is a, a common source material floating around and that this pattern was primarily fathered by, by each of the three, but each of them writing to a, a different audience, use their own method, they add and delete some, and also their approach is, is different because of the audience itself. <coughs> Luke is our only Gentile writer. Uh, he tells us initially that he writes as a historian. Uh, go back here again and look at the very first, uh, the key to Luke, the first few verses. He tells you that many have drawn up an account of the things that have been fulfilled, and so it lets you know that there are there are already a plurality of documents that Luke was familiar with that were in circulation at this time. And he's aware this information came from eyewitnesses. And then he says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Uh, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account, the emphasis therein that there was not an orderly account that he was aware of. Um, most excellent Theopolis. Uh, so that you might know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so he lets you know that, that Luke had taken it upon himself to, to access anything available that was written about Jesus. All the various accounts, he's read them. Uh, he's talked to the various eyewitnesses. Uh, he's researched it as well as he possibly can. And now uh, one thing he's picked up on, there is no orderly account. Uh, that the accounts floating around, however many there may have been, uh, gave stories about the miracles and the parables and various things in the life of Jesus, uh, uh, various things about his teaching, but there was none at this point that was orderly and, and put things in a chronological order, and Luke has, has done this for us. Okay, writing as a historian then, uh, writing as a Gentile, uh, because of this background and the way he handles it, I think if you sit down to study with somebody who is not a believer, Luke is the best of the four Gospels to use. And go from Luke, uh, use it as your basis with uh, Mark and Matthew worked in, and then, of course, John after that. All right, now, your next verse, and then we'll get into the ones for tonight, is uh, chapter 9, verse 51 that gives us our setting for the, the rest of the gospel. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And so beginning at this point, the entire discourse that takes place from that ninth chapter and that 51st verse all the way to the end is Jesus and his disciples 
making a trip to Jerusalem. So we have Jesus and the disciples traveling into Jerusalem for the Passover, one of the three times of the year when all the devout Jews from all over the Roman world that could get there would come to Jerusalem. And all of this that we have from the 9th to the 24th chapter encompasses a very short time in the life of Jesus. And remember we said, uh, again, anybody, uh, the percentage of our information in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that centers around just the last few days in the life of Jesus. I remember about 25%. About 25% of our information centers on that last bit. And it's interesting in looking at Luke with all he has available to him. And when he puts it in that you just think of the material, he's got 24 chapters here. And beginning in the latter part of the ninth chapter, he starts that last trip. Now, Jesus has already had three Passovers in Jerusalem. And so he starts that last trip up to Jerusalem that will culminate in his execution. And in John, you start in the 13th chapter, where we have the example of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And from the 13th all the way to the end, you're in the last couple of, the last, last few days. And the same with the other Gospels, the emphasis there. In other words, obviously, what has impacted on the writer's mind more than anything else is the latter part in the life of Jesus leading up to his execution and resurrection. I mean, that's the, the big impact in their mind, and, and that's where their emphasis has been in, in giving us the account. Okay, now, beginning then in the uh, 20th verse, uh, as we start to read here, remember that uh, at the time that he has come, that they are looking for the kingdom. In fact, look over here to... 18 and I believe verse 31. Let's see, maybe that is. Uh, uh, let me see here. I got the wrong one. What I was looking for is a passage that said that uh, that they were looking for the kingdom to immediately up here. It's Zacchaeus? No, no. I just saw the word. No. He made it. It's not. <laughs> well, we'll get, let's see. Yeah, right here it is. I know what it was. It says it once here. I just read this in the Revised Standard Version, and now I'm doing this from the NIV, so the wording's slightly different. Uh, look at verse 11 of 19. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was nearing Jerusalem. Notice again the emphasis on the fact he's getting close to Jerusalem. Uh, he began over 951 going towards it. The people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Okay, and the Revised Standard says immediately there. So they have the idea now, number one, that the kingdom is, is so near that it is ready to appear all at once. Now, another thing, another idea they have in the kingdom, and turn over to John 12, 34. Okay, Steve, you want to read that? John 12, 30, 
Uh, let me make sure on that. That's uh, might need to start back a verse. John 12 and verse. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, notice when they're ta- he's talking about the, uh, the 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 judgment, the situation in context, and that he's going to be killed in verse 32. And then look at verse uh, Steve read at verse 34. Christ spoke up. We heard it from the law that Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Okay. So in in their mind, uh, keep in mind because you're going to run into statements that where he'll make plain statements, and yet you'll find the the observation they didn't understand what he was saying, and they refused to believe him. And in their mind. The kingdom is ready to appear right now. And not only that, they have the idea that the Messiah is going to live forever. Uh, he, he, they're not looking for any heavenly uh, reign or spiritual kingdom. They're looking for a literal, physical kingdom right here on this earth with Jesus or the Messiah, whoever he is, the Messiah, to live forever. He's the son of David. He will reign from Jerusalem. The temple will stand uh, just as uh, David had. Well, then, with all of this in their mind, we can begin to see how what he's going to start to say now is, is going to be very shocking to them because he's going to, in the part we'll study tonight, he's going to let them know that, number one, he's going to be killed. Uh, number two, the city's going to be destroyed. Number three, the temple is going to be destroyed. And all of this just flies right in the face of everything that they have believed all their life. And at the time that Jesus gives us this information, it's also interesting in that uh, when we go back to literature outside the New Testament documents. And we look for the thinking of the Jewish uh, rabbis and scholars at this time. There was absolutely no one preaching that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and the temple was going to be destroyed uh, and that uh, there was a Messiah that was going to die and be raised from the dead. It it is absolutely unique uh, to the New Testament and to this setting that there's nobody else even teaching There's nobody else that has this concept in their mind, and yet this is what will happen. And again, the importance of this will will come about later in in evidences in that when we write, uh, we are the product of our environment, and our thinking is influenced by what is being thought around us and the concepts we have put in our mind. And we're coming in contact with something now that was absolutely unique to their mind. There was nothing floating around out there. It flies right in, right in the face of everything that they've been told, and yet it will come about. But it'll also help us to understand why it is it was so, that it was so difficult for them to understand it, even though he plainly told them. It just simply flew in the face of everything they'd been taught. How did the Jews interpret the, um, uh, the, the prophecies in Daniel? about the uh, abomination of desolation. Okay. And, uh, the, the abomination of desolation was... Uh, destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, the abomination of desolation was Antagonus Epiphanes in 164 when he came in and desecrated the uh, city and uh, tore the temple down. Mm-hmm. And see, since that time, it's been rebuilt by Herod. So none of that, that stuff in Daniel applied to the, to the New Testament times? Not, not to the, the, the Jewish mind. They thought that had already been fulfilled with Antagonus Epiphanes okay. and what they were looking forward to, and this is why they have this, this uh, thing about the kingdom ready to appear right now. Daniel had said in the days of the Fourth World Empire, 
that you know the Lord God would set up a kingdom that would not be destroyed. And you've had Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, and now you have Rome. And so, and Rome is the strongest of all of them. And so because of Daniel, Daniel is the number one reason that the Jews are at a fever pitch uh, waiting for this kingdom. They're, they're, it's already just about overdue from, from their standpoint. So they're waiting for the Messiah, they're, they're waiting for the kingdom. But so far as the destruction of the city, they believe that, uh, you know, that was all taken care of with Antagonus Epiphanes. What about the 77s? It mentions the abomination that caused the desolation at the end of that chapter, doesn't it? Well, they, they debated that. They even debated whether it was a, a, see the way the Bible uses the word seven, that just like Jesus said, you know, they, or they said to Jesus, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And you have this again, 70 times seven. And we know he's not saying 490. That uh, the way they use this word seven as a perfect number, that uh, many times it's difficult to determine whether it's literal or being used in a figurative sense. And they were debating among themselves on that point. In other words, you would have found you would have found Jewish scholars one way on it. It was a, it was a debatable topic. They just simply knew that that fourth empire was here. Uh, that all the time was ripe, and, and they were looking for his appearing at that time. But they had a lot of debate. In fact, all these open-ended prophecies that haven't been fulfilled at this time, the Jews have a, a number of different thoughts about it. Uh, I mean, and they and they in fact, a lot of the teaching of Jesus is speaking to the debates that they're having. You know, on some of these concepts. Okay, I want to start with the. Uh, 20th verse there. Uh, Mark, start with you over here and let's read on down through the uh, end of that chapter. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes, flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof on his house with his goods inside should go out to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses life will preserve it. I tell you, on the night two people will be in one bed, one will be taking the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taking and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Okay, now notice... Uh Several things. What was the question they asked him? 
Okay. When the kingdom of God would come, and he makes it clear it's not going to be what they're expecting, right? They're expecting to observe something. They, the Messiah is going to come in his glory and all and set up everything in Jerusalem, and they're looking for something. And so he starts off by saying, it will not come with your careful observation. And then he says that uh, the kingdom of God is um, within you, okay? Then he goes ahead and says, and remember what he's answering is the question is when the kingdom is going to come. And we have a judgment seat situation. The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Okay? And then it says, first he has to be rejected by this generation. That's in verse 25. Then he compares it to the days of Noah. And then he uses... Uh, Lot, he makes a statement in, uh, about the Son of Man being revealed in verse 30. On that day, uh, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one who is in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. There will be two people in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women grinding, the one taken. What kind of a judgment is that? That he's talking about. The one that gets up and gets out of town is going to save his life, right? And the one that stays is... Uh, a, it's something you could es escape. Right, something in, you can this, escape. In this physical world, it was, it was, a, it was something associated with it. Look at verse 31. Judgment. Right, physical judgment. Uh, one who is on the rooftop, with his, uh, on that day, no one who is on the rooftop of his house with his goods inside should go down and get them. In other words, get out. No one who's in the field should go back. All right, normally when a, when a city in that day... It had a walled city. They were attacked by an army. The people that were farming the ground out around the city, what did they? What would they do for their safety? Okay, they go in the city. But he said, if you're in the field, don't go in the city. Get out. Okay? Then if you're up on the rooftop, keep in mind, we have yards. They had rooftops. They went up on the rooftop. And so, remember, David was up on the rooftop before his adultery with uh, Bathsheba. So if he said, on your rooftop, if, uh, if there's uh, calamity coming, the temptation is to, you want to go down the house and get your most precious belongings, right? He says, don't do it. In other words, before you leave the town, what do you want to do? You want to grab your valuables, just like people that left their houses that were flooding. They grabbed their valuables, what they could. He says, no, if you're up on the housetop, and this thing is coming, don't even get down there and get your valuables. You get out. And so it, it's a type of judgment that you can escape by running. And if you, if you get out of town, and if you don't come into town, and he compares it to Lot's wife, you know, who turned back, and, and he also makes a comparison with uh, Noah here, both of them, physical-type judgments. Then he makes a statement of, uh, where there is the dead body, there the vultures will be gathered. Okay, hold your place there and flip over to uh, Matthew 24. 
Remember we said that, uh, and that's why I went back and reviewed uh, a little bit of it tonight, that Matthew wrote in topical order. He would take Jesus' teachings on the kingdom or the destruction of Jerusalem or miracles or parables or whatever, and he would gather a lot together. And so you read in topics, sort of like Nave's topical Bible. Luke is giving it to you in chronological order. Therefore, the, the information that you get from Luke strung out over a period of time, you're going to get in one big lump uh, in Matthew. Okay, now look at Matthew now in, in verse uh, 36, uh, 37. I tell you the truth, this will come on this generation. And then, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those sent to her, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. Okay, their house is left desolate. Where are you, Paul? In Matthew 23 and 24. Okay, 23, what verse? Uh, 36 and 37. Did I not call Matthew? I thought you said Matthew 24. Oh, okay. 23 and 36 and 37. And then in the 24th chapter... Okay, now remember how that ended over in the 17th chapter, the last verse there. About the vultures. About the vultures. Okay, look at verse 28 here. After you, you. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. So you get the same, your same discourse. But then come on down and look at verse 34. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. But then look after that, after he makes a statement, but after all these things have happened, he says in verse 36, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels, nor the son, but only the father, as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be in the coming of the son of man. Okay, well over here in the 17th chapter, notice this example about Noah is before verse 37 where it says the, the, there the vultures will be gathered, right? Everybody see that? Noah is in verse uh, 26, the days of Noah. In other words, I'm saying you have the same material arranged a little differently, right? Two different people just recording it. Right. In other words, I'm saying that the arrangement, does everybody see in verse 26, he uses Noah as the example there, and it's before where the dead body is there, the vultures be gathered. But over in Matthew, Noah is not used until verse 37, which is after verse 28, where the vultures are, the, where the dead carcass is, the vultures will be gathered. And then in between there, in verse 34, he tells you that this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. All I'm saying is you have exactly the same judgment situation in Luke and in Matthew, but yet they arrange it in a little different order. In other words, the arrangement is really not important. He's talking about a, a physical judgment on Jerusalem. And it was a type of thing that if you were alert to what Jesus was saying and paid attention to the signs, that you could escape the city. Uh, that if you were on the rooftop, and then you could get out. And if you were in the field, you could not come in the city. And you, you could actually ex escape it. And then he calls on the thing with Noah and Lot and the other illustrations as other past judgments. 
All right, but then again, what has the question been? The question is, when is the kingdom of God going to come? How do we decide it's uh, physical just because all these physical things he's talking about? Or? Well, it's something you can escape. In other words, that if you're talking about an end of the world judgment, it doesn't even make sense to say that, you know, if you're on the rooftop, don't go down and get your belongings, you know, before you leave town. Or if you're in the field, don't come into the city, you know, go ahead and, and leave. And that, uh, and the same with uh, any of the other things when he's talking to them to watch for these signs. But what does a person who, they would say, the person who says that this is an end time judgment type of situation, they would say these are... Um, He's using some kind of a symbolism here or some kind of... What well, about that? well, in uh, Matthew 24, what they would say is that it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem up until verse 30, uh, up through verse 34, 35. Then in verse 36, it starts with the end of the world. That's the way they, they'd say it. But um, that's why I'm saying that when you look at the passage in verse 36 Actually, and 37. They, they even mix it up more than that sometimes. Right. Because in that part, the sun being turned to dark, and thus, you know, that some people. Yeah. But primarily, I'm talking about from within the, uh, within the church. They would, they would put it, in other words, I don't know of any scholar in the church that wouldn't put that destruction of Jerusalem up through about verse 36. Well, yeah. So, I don't know. The, I, I was talking about some people I've talked to. They, yeah. they, they say in verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days, okay, after they say this is after the distress of those days, then you have the sun being turned, the yeah. sun be dark and the moon not yeah. giving its light and stuff. And then um, then they go some, some convoluted, convoluted logic and say, then he switches back. Right. Before he starts with the, this will all happen before this generation passes. Okay. But he, I'm saying within the church, now that's true from a premillennial standpoint, they will do that because they're going to take it all literal. That, uh, the sun and the moon, the stars and all of that. But I'm saying that right here in verse 34, he settles that, right? He says, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. So that the judgment they're looking forward to is one where they can observe signs and then know it's coming, right? That they observe those signs and know that it's coming, all right? But then I'm saying that when they start and they say, now it's talking about the end of the world in verse 36. But when we get over and read Luke's account, Luke takes this 36 and 37 of Matthew and puts it way up there before Matthew's verse 28 in talking about the same judgments. In, East, in other words, he compares this city that's being taken uh, to a dead carcass and the vultures have now gathered. Okay, now look, uh, come back over to Luke, the 17th chapter, where we was, and notice that, uh, uh, let's see, come on over to the, uh, hold it there in the 17th, and come over to the 21st chapter. Look at verse 5 of 21. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned. He says, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another and every one of them should be thrown down. They said, what shall, what, when will these things happen? 
what will be the sign that they are about to take place. Okay, then he tells them about all these signs, wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, signs in the skies, etc., etc. And then look at verse uh, 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And verse 22, for this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. Okay, now keep that in your mind. Flip right back over there to Matthew in the 23rd chapter, beginning with verse uh, 23 on down, and he names all the atrocities of the Jews, that they killed the prophets and they killed Jesus, and then now Jerusalem is going to be destroyed also. Okay? So then you come on down at when he says this about Jerusalem, and then look at verse 23. How dreadful it will be for in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land. In other words, if you're talking about an end of the world thing, it, uh, a pregnant woman or nursing mothers, no different than anybody else. They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations, and then it says, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then he says, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, etc. And you come on down in verse 31, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Okay, remember our, our question back over in the 17th chapter that caught, got Jesus into the whole thing? When is the kingdom of God coming? Okay? And then he tells them all this judgment situation. And now he says that after this judgment situation, the kingdom of God then is near. I tell you the truth, verse 32, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, be careful or your hearts be weighted down, etc. In other words, be on their guard. And so in the context, where is Jesus on his way to? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay. What is their concept of the kingdom and the temple and the Messiah? Physical. Physical. Messiah lived forever kingdom of the Jerusalem stands, temple stands. And, and on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus knows that, that they're going to kill him. And as we get further on, he's going to make some real strong statements uh, to the people at that time and make it very clear. And this is just the first of the statements here in the 17th chapter. But the context is one where he's traveling to Jerusalem for the last time. Remember now, every time Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he has a nasty confrontation with the religious leaders, right? He's already cleaned house. He's going to clean house again in there. But every time he goes to Jerusalem, there's this nasty confrontation with the religious leaders, and he winds up having to leave. And we've noted that the reason Jesus spends most of his time in Galilee is because his life was on the line every time he went to Jerusalem with the religious leaders. But now he's going up for the final time, and he knows they're going to kill him. And so he's going to, he tells them, you know, he knows that they're going to kill him, and that again he's going to come forth from the dead. And then he begins to tell them about the kingdom. It's, it's not going to come with observation the way you think it is. You can say, lo, here it is, or lo, there it is. 
I'm telling you that right now the kingdom of God is within you. And then he steps in that when is the kingdom coming? And then he talks about a judgment. And as we, as we move on our road to Jerusalem, he keeps coming, becoming very specific. And he tells them that the, the armies are going to come and surround Jerusalem. That if they're on the rooftop, they better get out of there. Don't stay. If they're out here in the field, uh, don't turn and go in. Go ahead and leave. And then he tells them how bad that it's going to be. And he says that when he gets through with the temple, there won't be one stone standing. And then what will happen? He says, when you see this happen, and know what? The kingdom of God is near. I don't understand that. I mean, he's using kingdom a lot of different ways. I mean, he uses it one time we've already talked about when he's referring to heaven, I think, or eternal, an eternal type kingdom. And then he says the kingdom is within you, and then he turns around and he talks about a kingdom in the sense of it's going to happen after this judgment that you're talking about. Well, all through here, uh, what he's got to do, he's got to counteract what they believe in their mind, and that's the part of the problem. All right, he's already told them that the seed of the kingdom is the word of God, right? And if you ever you sow it in an honest heart. So I'm saying what he's saying here is consistent with what he's already taught. The kingdom is, is within you. Well, see, they didn't think of it that way. And, and remember what's going to happen uh, just shortly after this, Zacchaeus will be converted as somebody that they didn't even want to talk to. And this guy is a child of the kingdom also. It showed in, in his repentance. And the kingdom of God is something that, that takes place within the heart of individuals. And they didn't even recognize him. He was right there uh, sowing the seed. The kingdom was in the process of having its birth. Okay? But although he's sowing the seed, and it's in the process, and the disciples are going to go out and sow the seed, it's going to have its birth on Pentecost. It's in the process of starting now. But when the kingdom gets its start, just its birth on Pentecost, Christianity is this little bitty insignificant nothing inside of Judaism. But what about Israel? They are the, that is God's kingdom, uh, the, the kingdom of Jehovah, so far as the, the world out there is concerned. And all during this period up until judgment on them, you had two groups of people stating that they were the people of the true God. And that was the Jews and that's the Christian. And then finally, when Jesus' words are fulfilled and Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is destroyed and the Jews are scattered and they become a hiss and a byword, what happens to the kingdom of Israel at that point? Ceases to exist. It's gone. There's no more, all worship had to take place in the temple. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more worship according to the law of Moses. Their records are all destroyed. There's no more Levites. There's no priest. It's wiped out. And then what happens? Now Christianity will fill the entire world. And, and, you, and you'll have one dominant body of people there. And the kingdom will be taught in such a way as to show that the kingdom is a worldwide institution with headquarters in no, no city or location or anything like that. It's a worldwide institution that exists anywhere the word of God is, is sold into the hearts of people. But all of this is contrary to what they were expecting. But the question they're asking is, when is the kingdom of God coming near? And he launches into that description of the judgment. And then that correlates perfectly with what he said over Matthew 24 and also in uh, Luke. Now, 
whether okay. he's talking about the kingdom being within you or um, whether he's talking about um, eternally or, or whatever, as Mark pointed out, basically it would be the same thing. Your spirit is eternal, and so if the church is, is the people, the spirit, the the inside of us that we're remaking in the image of God, that is the kingdom. Yeah. And that is eternal, and it's going to right. forever. So whether he says whatever phrase he's using to me, he's referring to the same. Well, the same thing. The Messiah the was going to live forever, correct? But not in the way they thought. And the kingdom would be eternal and would never be destroyed, but not in the way they thought. The spirits. The, the Messiah... Oh. Uh, would reign from heaven and outside of a physical body and the kingdom would exist in the hearts of people uh, who were who had the Messiah in their heart and who were emulating him in their lives and as they sold that word in the hearts of others that kingdom would exist all over the world and this spirit that has been saved in Christ is 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 eternal and it will never die and that so that you have and when what they were doing, they were this idea of the Messiah living forever on this earth is not one that they just made up as a wild hypothesis. The Messiah was going to live forever. And the fact that the kingdom was going to be eternal, that's what the Old Testament taught. But where they made their mistake, they interpreted entirely as a physical thing here on this earth instead of a, a spiritual entity. And, and they did the same thing with the law of Moses when they, instead of looking at it as a means to an end, with all of these physical things being a type of something spiritual, they looked at it as an end within itself and, and didn't want to give it up. But I think, Mark, that he's talking the way he does because of what they have in their mind. And then he's answering the, the questions. And I think the, the confusion that exists is because of uh, the misconceptions they have all the way through. All right, what about the, uh, we, uh, over and again, for, for sake of time, because there's no way we hit it all, but the passages Steve alluded to that are in Luke and Matthew in this judgment situation about the sun and the moon and the stars, etc., uh, as, as signs, you know, the sun not giving its light and the stars falling to the earth and, and the earth being shaken and all that kind of thing. Well, first of all, in the context, where does each of them fall? From a, from a chronological standpoint, where do those statements fall relative to all that he's saying? Talking about this... Uh... Now, it all starts when... Uh... They're at the temple. They're at the temple in Jerusalem. And um, they're commenting about how magnificent it is. And he, uh, then he tells them that uh, this is going to be destroyed. And uh, every, the discussion starts there. And it's talking about Jerusalem from beginning to end, it seems like. Jerusalem is mentioned repeatedly. And, uh, okay, would anybody even think of it? For, and again, we're limiting ourselves to this text right now, and then we're going to back. Would anybody even think of it as anything other than Jerusalem and the temple if it were not for these statements of 
the, the sun and the moon and the stars and the, and the shaking of the earth and all like that, would anybody think of it in any other way other than the destructive I think they still think of it that way. But the problem is, they still think of it the right way, and they rightly attribute that to figurative language. I think the problem is that when we approach something with a preconceived notion of, of there is this thing called uh, a second coming, there is this thing, the end of the world judgment, if you have that in your mind when you approach, right. when you look at Scripture in the first place, then you begin to look for things that fit into that pattern. Okay, but with our... Tonight, with us, I mean, saying, looking at this text, I'm saying, I agree with what you're saying there. But if you were reading what you're reading here in Luke, and he's mentioned the armies encompassing Jerusalem, and he's mentioned about, if you're in the field, don't come in the city. If you're on the rooftop, don't come down. And he talks about the destruction of the temple, not one stone left standing on another. And he's answering a question concerning when the kingdom is going to come and he talks about judgment and he mentions Jerusalem and he mentions the temple. I'm saying that, that would, would you think of it if that's all you had, if you didn't have the information that you mentioned, if, if that's all you had, would you think of it in any other way other than that physical judgment that he's talking about there except if you were only had this information and you saw that thing about the sun and the moon and the stars, etc.? I mean, is there anything there that would make you think that he's talking about the end of the world? No. Okay. Except if you looked at that about the sun and the moon and the stars, well, not right? Even that, if, you, if you read the Old Testament recently. Right. But I'm, no, I said limiting yourself to this text. Because, see, that's part of the problem, too, that I'm saying that just like we mentioned at the beginning, that these people were hampered in their understanding because of concepts they had in their mind about the kingdom, right? They thought it was going to be a physical thing and a physical, the, the temple and everything like that. But now what you brought up, Steve, is the way that we're hampered. We come to it today, and how many Christians sit down and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who have studied the prophets of the Old Testament? You see that... Or, uh, or and, and two of the problem is, I mean, we, we always read this, and we, we so quickly sometimes want to go into application into what does this mean for me and how do I live my life, that we don't first establish what it meant for them, what was their situation. And I think that that's also part of it. Okay, I, I agree with you there, that instead of looking at it and say, hey, we're in the last couple of weeks of the life of Jesus, he's on the way to Jerusalem, uh, they've run him out of town three times prior, he knows they're going to kill him, and he's going to tell them, okay, you kill me, but I'm coming out and I'm going to destroy your city, you've re rejected the Messiah, that that is the context and the questions that they're asking him have to do with the kingdom and the city and the temple. That's what they're concerned with. So far as an end of the world, now let's ask this question. What Jew believes that the world is going to end right now? Well, obviously, they have the concept of a kingdom being established forever with the Messiah reign forever from Jerusalem. There's going to be no end of the world. Okay. They were not looking for an end of the world. There was no Jew looking for the end of the world. Uh, the Messiah was going to come and live forever in Jerusalem. Remember John 12, 34, when the Messiah comes? What do you mean you're going to be killed? When he comes, he's going to live forever. And, and see, the Jerusalem and the temple was to go on. There's no concept. The resurrection, think, listen, when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What were they saying about Jesus? How did Peter answer that? One of the prophets. One of the prophets. Or 
John the Baptist risen from the dead. They were looking for uh, our, and then, and then what about John the Baptist? Elijah. Uh, they were looking literally for John the Baptist to be raised again. They were looking for Elijah. They were looking for Jeremiah. They were looking for all those great people of antiquity to be, have a resurrection. And they would be raised, and then they would live in this eternal kingdom right on this earth, and they would, they would control the world. That's what the Jew was looking for in that day. And so that is in their mind, and so we can't go back and put things that are in our mind in their mind as they ask those questions. And so then what they want to know is, Lord, the, the kingdom's supposed to be appear immediately. When is the kingdom coming? And then he sets out and talks about a judgment on them and says, when you see this, then you know the kingdom's right at hand. The kingdom is near when you see, when you see this coming, coming about. Okay, now, with all that in mind now, hold your place there just to go back and we look at three simple places because of... Um, uh, we mentioned the figurative language, and so flip on back to Isaiah 13, and look at verse, uh, who read last anyway? Uh, Mark. Uh, Isaiah 13, beginning with verse uh, 10. Let's see. Uh, James, you want to read that, please, 10 through 13 of Isaiah 13. For stars of heaven and the constellation thereof shall not give their light. The shun shall be darkened in the going forth, and the moon shall not cause for light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy, the proud to cease, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than a golden wage of offer. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of God of, and the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the days of his fierce anger. Okay, now look at that. The day of the Lord is coming. Right in verse 9. Stars of the heaven will not give their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. In verse 13, I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth shall shake from its place at the wrath of the Almighty. But then we look at the context and it's verse 1 of chapter 13, an oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah saw. And then we come on down to verse uh, 17, see I will stir up against them the Medes. And in verse 19, Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown as God overthrown Sodom and Gomorrah. So we can see, obviously, figurative language talking about Babylon. Okay, now flip on over here to Isaiah 34. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear. And the world and all that comes out of it, the Lord is angry with all the nations, his wrath upon their armies. He will totally destroy them. And look at verse uh, 4. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved. The sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall and gathered like the leaves from the wine, like the shriveled figs. 
My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on who? Edom. And then, let's notice what it says. Drop on down to verse 9. Edom's streams will turn to pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become a blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. Well, Edom was destroyed. And uh, it was defeated. And it was burned up. But is it still burning? It's not. The word forever comes from the Greek word olam that literally means the period under consideration. It, it burnt till it burned up. And that was forever. And we're using figurative, highly figurative language. If you think about it from the prophet standpoint, what better way to determine the wrath of God? When we talk of a person who's mad, we say he blew his top, he's red-faced, he's boiling, we use all of those when we talk, talk about his eyes were fiery red. Uh, he was grinding his teeth. We use all those terms to talk about anger. Well, then what better way to talk about the anger of the creator than stars being cast from heaven and the sun not given its light and the earth being shaken? And so in the same way that, that we sometimes describe somebody that's mad, they were describing the anger and the wrath of the Creator. And by the way, the way they're doing it was common in that day. It wasn't unique to the prophet. All right, now, move on back to one more in Isaiah 19. And the same thing. Uh, Isaiah 19, an oracle concerning Egypt. So we're talking about Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. Well, was God literally riding a cloud? He wasn't, was he? And, if you, and, and as you read through Isaiah, what you find out is every time it talks about the idols, they're always riding donkeys. You know, they're always being carried, and it mocks them. Our God rides the clouds. The idols are carried on the back of donkeys. Okay, now, with that in mind, back up here to Luke again. And we've looked at this whole judgment situation. If you were a Jew then in that day, let's, let's get in mind, Jesus is talking to Jews in that day. Okay, you believe that the kingdom is, is ready to come right now. You're ready for the Messiah. You believe the Messiah is going to live forever on this earth. You believe the key to being in the kingdom is to be a descendant of Abraham of the fleshly tribe of, of Israel, and you believe that the temple is going to stand, the city will stand, and the king will reign there, and there's going to be this resurrection, and people are going to come to life, uh, all these righteous people that live through the centuries, and they're all going to live at this, at this point. That's what you believe. But it's every bit wrong. But at the same time you believe those things that are wrong, when it comes to judgment, where God talks about judgment on cities or country, you also know that whether it's Jesus or John the Baptist or Isaiah or any prophet, when they talk about the stars falling from the heaven and the sun not giving its light and, and the moon being darkened and the earth being sh shaken and God riding on a cloud, you don't think any of that is literal. Because that's the way the prophets have been preaching to you for centuries. And you know that that is uh, poetic metaphor language that de using idioms, uh, depicting the anger and the wrath of God 
uh, and the prophets have used this, and that's in your mind also. So I'm saying when Jesus used that terminology, it didn't throw them at all because that was their background, and he's speaking from their book, the, the Old Testament. Now that's the part that sometimes throws us because many times we approach it not having studied the prophets of the Old Testament. On the other hand, the part that threw them doesn't throw us. That uh, when, when he talked about, you and I read about the kingdom within you and the seed of the kingdom being the word and the kingdom being eternal and the Messiah being eternal, and we don't find that difficult at all because we've never been taught different. And we were taught that from the first. And so we read it and we find that very easy to read and it just flows in, a, in an easy way with us. Any, uh, any observation or comments? There's a verse in uh, Matthew 24 which says, two men will be take, will be in the field and won't be taken the other way up. Right. Lambs that talks about that and, and, uh, and he talks about that that was dealing with people that were to be uh, taken into captivity as slaves. And I thought that was real interesting because that's a verse that, that I've used, heard used a lot of different ways. and. And he would talk about that, like the women grinding. He said there'd be an older woman and a younger woman grinding. Usually, when there were two grinding, he said the young women would be taken in as slaves, but they would they would leave the old yeah, older people. That's good. Lamsa is from the east. He's from Syria, and he has some very good material out uh, uh, dealing with the a lot of things in the Bible that they understood in a figurative way and also a lot of the uh, things like uh, Mark mentioned that we read and speculate and yet it was common practice in that day to be done in a, done in a certain way. Just like in the city and all that we have to we have to have a hard time understanding that part unless we go back and project ourselves in, into the minds of those people and the, what the city actually meant to them and the walls. And by the way, if you were a Jew, Jerusalem should be the safest place to get, shouldn't it? Because God's going to fight for you, just like he did in the days of Hezekiah. What happened when Sennacherib brought his army against Israel? Well, God killed 185,000 in one night. And so they knew that the only time that they lost is when they were sinning like when Nebuchadnezzar came against them. And so now they're just confident, you know, the Messiah's coming and they're the people of God and the kingdom's there, so uh, in Jerusalem is where they will actually go. Okay, any other comments or questions? Okay, uh, let me see here. We've gone through the... Uh, does everybody see the significance... Of verse 37 in 1737, and the fact that that verse is in in Matthew 24:28, and the statement in of Noah up here in verse 26 is in verse 37 through 39 of Matthew 24. Everybody sees the significance of that. That obviously we're talking about the same judgment, and the writer didn't even think it's it didn't it was not a big thing to him whether whether Noah was given up here, like in Luke's account, or whether he's given after uh, the statement about the, the uh, 
dead body and the vultures in uh, Matthew's account. It's, it's, it's really not significant to him. And by the way, if you read through Luke and Matthew, you'll find that happens several times with the teaching of Christ, where the order will actually be reversed. In other words, obviously, the, the, the writer himself is just in, concerned about the content and doesn't see any significance to the particular order that the teaching was given in. Is there any significance in the fact that, okay, I might have missed it, but the question in Matthew 24 that the disciples asked Jesus is, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that's not stated the same way in Luke, is it? Well, he doesn't. Uh... I mean, he didn't say, they don't say, he didn't say, the sign of your coming, does it? Yeah, he says uh, in Luke, uh, let me get over here, Luke 21, uh, in verse 5, some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned, etc. He says, what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. He says, when will these things happen? What will be the sign they are about to take place? In other words, uh, that... Luke poses a question in, in such a way that, that, that all of it is what will be the sign when these take place, the temple and the, and the other. Matthew adds the consummation of the age there. Uh, he says, I guess what it says, see one of the things that gets a lot of people today is it says what will be the sign of your coming mm-hmm. and he didn't literally come at this time and so it's almost like they're looking for him to come literally. Well, they were, uh, but when he talks about the, his looked coming. At, Luke didn't even pick that up at all. It's like that, that wasn't even important enough for him to even mention it. Yeah. Well, he's uh, obviously, Luke put in there everything he thought you needed to know. To understand that, I guess you know, that's what I was trying to say. and that, uh, and the whole thing to Luke is when is when is this temple going to be destroyed and when's the city, and that's that's the entire thing. The uh, consummation of the age, the Jew was looking for that. He, uh, the prophet had said that uh, that that age there would be a they had they were in a time and then there would be the latter times, and there would be the ushering in of a new covenant when the Messiah came. Go back like to Jeremiah 31, for example, uh, that uh, he contrasts the old covenant and then this new covenant would come when his laws would be put in their heart. And so the Jew definitely had that in their mind that uh, uh, Joel spoke of the latter days of that dispensation and then a judgment and then the ushering of the new. But they were looking for the latter days of this situation and then the new would start after that. The difference was, in the covenant they were now in, Israel is this one little piece of ground about the size of New Jersey, and that's it. And in fact, right now, they're in a captive state to Rome. And before that, they were in a captive state to Greece, and before that, it was Medo-Persian, before that, it was Babylon. And the 10 tribes had already been carried off by Assyria. So that, that was Israel. Well, they were looking forward when the new days come, when they got their land back, and they would have all of Israel, and, and then God's covenant would be restored and renewed, and they would have the temple and the city and everything, and then Israel would sort of be the, the number one country on the earth, and the Messiah would reign, and all the earth would be blessed because of Israel. 
But at the time in the Old Testament when they spoke of this, they looked for an end of that dispensation and then a, a and, and all of these looking to the end of that dispensation come from prophets who are speaking to a scattered people. And they're looking for the time when they all come together and they're all united and they have their country and they have their city and they have their temple and that all the earth is blessed through them. Jesus also meant they had talked about the Son of Man coming several times before this book. In uh, Matthew 10, uh, 10, verse 23, I tell you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And then in 16, uh, 20, 28, I tell you the truth, some who are saying here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So it would be a natural question if, if he's prophesying about the uh, the destruction of this city or whatever, when is this going to happen and, and when is your coming going to happen too? You know, because he's told them before that he's that, that, that about his coming. Right, and you have a, when they ask then verse 27, 28 of Matthew 16, that he spoke of a judgment, the, the coming would take place when that there would be a judgment situation and that judgment situation would take place in their lifetime. He said, some of you will still be living at the time it took place. And another time he said, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before it yeah. comes. Remember on the judgment situation uh, all through here, anytime a time frame is given, it's always in that generation or it's near at hand one or the other. It's always in that generation or it's near, near at hand, but they, it was something that definitely involved them and it was also something that they could see signs and then as a result of those signs they could avoid the situation. Alright, another observation then from Matthew's account and, and Luke's account in 21 also. Let's go back to Luke 21 now when he starts uh, they ask in verse 7, what will when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to take place? Okay, he says you will hear wars, revelations, uh, revolutions. And then verse 10, nation rising against nation. Okay, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, verse 11. And then he, you come on down and, and when you see Jerusalem, verse 20, being surrounded by armies. Okay, let's look at this now on the, on the signs he gives before Jerusalem. He says, here's some of the signs. Wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, pestilence. Right now, in our own country, in, in, in congregations all over this nation, there are more sermons than you can shake a stick at being preached saying that the, the Lord is going to come again. What, what are we having? We're having a great flood. We had an earthquake, and we were about to have a, an out in California, and we've had several. They had a big earthquake in Japan, didn't it? Big earthquake. We got a huge flood over here. Do we have any wars and rumors of war going on in the world right now? Do we, do we have famine in the world right now? So we got famine. We got earthquakes. We got floods. We've got wars, and we've got rumors of wars. In other words, every single solitary thing he mentions is going on right now. Okay? What about uh, 30 years ago? Was it all going on? What about 30 years before that? 
has there ever been a single solitary year but that someplace on this world, if you're thinking about the world as a whole, that that's not going on? There hasn't been. Well, then how is that a sign of his coming? If, 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 if as long as man has been here, there's never been a, there's never a year that there's not an earthquake someplace on this earth. There's never a year that there's not famines. There's always been famines. And there's never a year that there's not a famine somewhere on this earth. So there are famines, there are droughts, there's earthquakes, there's floods, and there's wars, and there's rumors of wars every single solitary year in the history of the world. Then how are these signs? Limited to a geographical location. Okay. That if you're talking about Jerusalem, that there's not famines in Jerusalem. And if you're talking about the Roman Empire here in the Roman world, there's not famines all the time. And there's not wars and rumors of wars all the time. There's not earthquakes all the time. That uh, It's only when you think of the whole world. And at the time that Jesus talked, Rome is in control. We have a time of peace. There's no wars or rumors and roars. And it's interesting, as we go from here up to the destruction of Rome, we have famine. Where do you read in the New Testament about the famine? Anybody remember? Remember in Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, the disciples were took up a contribution to send to the needy saints in Jerusalem because of the famine there. And, and so there, and then uh, right before 70 AD, Colossae is destroyed with an earthquake. And, and they have all this. And then uh, we have Nero come on the throne. And after Nero's been on the throne for uh, 54 to 64, about 10 years, he is such a culprit and an ungodly reprobate that there begins to be weaknesses in the Roman Empire, and you have other nations talking about rising up and rebelling against Rome, and finally in 66, Israel rebels. So you got wars, rumors, of, well then what, if you've listened to Jesus here, and then you live your life from this point, and there's the famine, what are you thinking? And then there's the earthquake. What are you thinking? And then you've got wars and rumors of wars. Well, you're at fever pitch. And then the next thing is the armies begin to surround Jerusalem. And then you know, you know, you go ahead and get out. So, so that we can look at this, and if we go back historically and put ourselves in that situation, we can actually see every last bit of it unfold, and it all makes sense. Now, what happens on this is what Steve said earlier, that people read this and apply it to themselves without looking at its historical context. And so they sit down and some preacher gets hold of a text and, and he knows that everybody's in tune to these floods and earthquakes and everything like that. So he can preach this sermon anytime he wants to, right? If he hadn't had a response in about 10 weeks or something like that, get this thing out and talk, talk about the earthquakes and the floods and, and all of this kind of thing. If there's been... a big old flood going in the Midwest right now, it'd be yeah. a good second... Second coming time. Oh, hey. Yes. Hey, amen, brother. Right. <laughs> the time is coming, you yeah. know. Saddam Hussein's not in the news anymore, so he can't use the internet. Right, but, but you could now. A few years back, yeah, yeah. when we were just a few years ago, what was happening? They were passing pamphlets. They were mailing to the houses, telling us that the, everything was going to end right then. And they were pointing all these prophecies at Saddam. Well, they did it with Hitler. They did it with Stalin. 
uh, and they've done it. And in 1843 and 44, uh, Ella G. White and, and a fellow by the name of Miller had a whole crew of people up on their housetops waiting for the Lord to come, and all the signs were right. And that resulted in the Seventh-day Adventist Church right, right after that. That's what they call themselves the Adventist for. And they constantly, I take their publications, constantly use these same signs. Well, you can preach on them anytime you want to because they're, they're always going on. Then you have uh, John, which was in close association with Jesus, who gets this revelation who says that the time is near on top of that. Right. You got all... So you got these signs that you're talking about and then you got this prophetic book from one of Jesus' close associates. Yeah, in fact, and that's true all the way through, and it all the their all of their time frame is something that is just becomes more imminent as we move through the New Testament. Uh, anybody want to make any other comments before we close for tonight? And again, for uh, those of you all that just come in tonight, that's a lot for one study. It, it, but it, it's a difficult thing. It's like it's too much for one study. And by the way. We hit the 17th chapter, we'll go ahead and hit the 18th, 19th, and we will cover the 21st chapter when we get to it. But it's impossible to hit that 17th without also coming up to the 21st and going over to Matthew. But, but by the time that we get through the 21st and 22nd chapter, then I think you find that it all just falls into place. And this is the first part we went into it, but when we hit the 21st and go through it, it'll all, it'll all come together. One of the things, Paul, that I noticed from you through tonight is like in 21, you got the disciples asking Jesus these questions, and then all through his answer, he, he uses, he's, he's talking to them specifically, he says, when you see this, and, mm -hmm. and when you, and he, he just keeps referring back to you. And one of the things, when I was in the Church of God, and, and we looked at uh, the things about the, uh, the gifts of the Spirit and all, one of the things a lot of people do is they take all those things and apply it like it's being said to them, and you can go back and you can see that he was talking specifically to them, to right. the apostles, and they were going to be given special gifts. Well, the same thing that applied with that applies with this too. I mean, he's, he's speaking directly to them. It's not, you know, something that he's projecting out in the future or anything that he's He's letting them know that you're going to be persecuted and you need to look for these signs and and don't you be deceived and, and, and so it's specifically for them. I think among conservative Christians who believe strongly in the inspiration of the Bible, the most common mistake in interpretation is what you're talking about. Whether it's Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, whether it's the miraculous gifts, whether it's the judgment here that they apply to the end of the world when in reality he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the Jewish nation. But the biggest mistake is to read this as if it's being spoken directly to us in our culture and our generation when in reality we ought to read it as something that was spoken to them 2,000 years ago in a particular situation. And we're going to understand it to the extent that we're able to go back and use history and their language and put our mind in the same position that they were when they listened to it and, and say, what did they believe? And, and what were they really asking? And then it, uh, that's the only way. And then after we see it, 
then we come forth and make our applications. By the way, on this with the destruction of Jerusalem, he forecasted it came about exactly. We said that it was something that uh, was not even being talked about at that time. It's unique with Jesus. How can you use something like that today? Well, that was a sign given in Deuteronomy from somebody spoke something before it came to pass that it was a sign that they were a true prophet. Okay, that you actually have, a, <clears throat> from the New Testament standpoint, uh, there are two predictions that Jesus made, wasn't it? One was about his own death, burial, and resurrection, and the other was the thing about the city and the temple. And at the time that he made both of them, they both sounded absurd to the Jew. The, the thing about the destruction of the temple and the city and, and all of this Judaism being done away with and all, that was as absurd and ridiculous and foreign to Jewish thinking as his own mentioning his death, burial, and resurrection. And, and yet it was perfectly, both of them were perfectly fulfilled. And then as you leave the Gospels, all through the letters of the New Testament, they keep speaking of this judgment that's near at hand and going to come about. And, and when it does, it perfectly fulfills those words. One of the things you're talking about being absurd in verse 20 of 21, it says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know this desolation is near, then let those who are in Judea flee the mountains. And you think, well, that would be absurd if it's being surrounded by armies, how can you get out? But then you go back and look at historically what happened is there was an army that surrounded Jerusalem, and then they withdrew for a period of time, and then a short time later there was another army came in and surrounded Jerusalem. Right. And also it's interesting, Josephus does a good job pointing out that when Titus brought the army around, he really didn't want to destroy the city. Yeah. And, and he didn't want to kill all those people. He, he was actually a decent person. And he wanted them to surrender and come out. And the Jew was so bullheaded and, and was going to fight to the last death. And Wasn't then, there a group that, I mean, maybe some of the, the Jews would have given him, but there was a group, the Zealots or something. Right, Zealots. I, 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 somebody was telling me that, that they killed more of each other than the Romans killed. These people going around sort of mm -hmm. enforcing enforcing the hard line that we're not going to give up here, you know, right. the guy that thought otherwise would be killed or whatever. That's what Josephus recorded, that the zealots probably killed more than what Rome did, that every time that anybody would even suggest the surrendering, that they were, they were there to make sure it didn't happen. No. Because they said, what's the sign of the end of the age? Right. right? Is that what they were literally right. saying? The end of the world was not even part of their thinking. It was just not, they were looking to live forever right here on this earth. Uh, to show you their concept of the resurrection, again, remember the Sadducees had this argument with the Pharisees against the resurrection, and the Pharisees couldn't answer them. And remember the Sadducees were saying, well, here's this, here's this woman that's had seven husbands, one at a time. And in the resurrection, which one of them does she belong to? And the Pharisees couldn't answer that. You know, they, and, and by the way, if you believe in a bodily resurrection, everybody living here on this earth, uh, that's pretty hard to answer, isn't it? Because anytime your mate dies, you've got the right to, to remarry. And so they asked that, and then Jesus made it very clear that they didn't understand, that they didn't understand the power of God or the scriptures. And he said, in the resurrection, there's not going to be any male and female. There's not going to be any marriage, but you'll be as angels be before God. 
So he told them that their concept of the resurrection was wrong, that they were thinking physical, when in reality it's your spirit that's made in the image of God and not your body. I ran into an article that uh, Mark uh, Johnson uh, sent me, and I made some copies of it that I'll give everybody. This will it will fit in with this, but it's uh, it deals with that uh, coming situation and the judgment with the time frame, you know, of, of 70, 70 A.D. But uh, uh, he said he don't even his name. Somebody mailed it to him, and he don't he never heard of the guy, neither have I. But it was a it's a very good article. It's amazing me when you take this view of this and go back and read through the Gospels, how many things that Jesus said that you can tell that he had in his mind this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the parables he told, there's so many parables that tie into it. And, uh, well, the one we haven't even got to, like right, the next, next one up in Luke is, is uh, the city that's going to be burnt and then uh, sending his... Uh, uh, servants out and they kill one they kill the next and they kill the third and then the God sends the son and they kill the son and well what are you going to do he's going to come in judgment and burn their city and, and destroy them right? it was just yeah, it's, it's time so and time I mean, again so many things you go back and read and it's so plain that that's what he's talking about Yeah. and uh, you know, before I understood this like this those things you'd read them you'd just scratch your head the difficulty part too is, is so much for like one thing, like we hit that 17th, but by the time we go through it all, but it is, it's just uh, a lot to try and get across. In fact, that's the difficulty in the Holy Spirit, you know, like he's mentioned, is that you can't study it in one session, and it's yeah. difficult to get people to stick with you long enough to go all the way through it. And then in church, our setting of a 30-minute class on Sunday and a, and a 25 minute sermon and, and then a little 35 or so many class is not conducive to studying anything with any depth. It's right. just not. You make anybody mad they don't want you to teach anymore. Yeah. Right. But I mean, if you, don't, if you don't say what they, what they already think and agree with. Then you but, but at your best, I'm saying the time frame itself, you, if you pose a question that somebody has problems with or if they pose something, there's really no time mm -hmm. to handle it. You know, you, so the you, your best thing in the in a congregational setting is really to avoid controversial things. I mean, I have come to that conclusion that it's uh, you don't have the time to handle it, so it's best just to avoid it in that standing. Question.